Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we are joined by a longtime friend of this podcast, Academy Award-winning sound supervisor and re-recording mixer, Skip Livesay, is back again in conversation with Academy Award-winning director, Davis Guggenheim, to talk about their latest collaboration on the amazing documentary, Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. I think in a much more traditional documentary, you can polish too much the sound, you can make it too perfect. And that's sort of what we talk about, the off-camera voice. You you, you want to make sure the audience feels like you're, you haven't screwed with the original material. This film is currently streaming on Apple TV Plus in both Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and it has been nominated for seven Primetime Emmy Awards, including one for Outstanding Sound Editing, Outstanding Directing, and Outstanding Documentary. If you haven't seen the movie yet, it might not be what you expect. Yes, it offers a detailed look into Michael's battle with Parkinson's disease, but it is not a sad film. In fact, it's often really quite funny, and the humor clearly extended to the mixing stage. Davis and Skip's friendship goes way back, and you can see why they seem to work so well together. If you're unfamiliar with Davis Guggenheim's work, he is a filmmaker with an extraordinarily diverse body of work, including powerful documentaries exploring huge social issues such as climate change and the American public education system. And he won his Academy Award for the film An Inconvenient Truth. So I wanted to start this interview asking what it was about Michael J. Fox's story that drew him to this project and why he felt like he was the right filmmaker for the job. Well, whether I'm the right filmmaker for it is still to be determined. But um, uh, I, uh, about three years ago, I was looking for a movie and frankly was in a rut creatively. I felt like I was making the same movie over and over again. And, um, and I couldn't find the next thing to do. And I, I put these cards on a board. I was so, so frustrated that I just like, what are the qualities? And those qualities were like, wild the, the words like the wild adventurous funny um all the things that my films were not and um and and the last card was not, an underline not a famous person uh-huh and this project turned out to be everything except the last part and in fact when i i was reading michael j fox's books which are incredible and um, I was like, this would be a great movie. Who should I get to direct this? Because I was like, I don't know. It's like, it's about a celebrity and it's maybe it's not substantial enough. And and so I almost gave it to somebody else because, you know, I have a, I have a company that that, that that finances things. But then I, but then I just was like, couldn't let it go. And uh, there was something about Michael, Michael J. Fox that um, had a profound effect on me him him in his he's in his early 60s i'm about to turn 60 how you how he deals with life and his fragility was help was very meaningful to me so i always find it i'm sorry for the long-winded answer but i'm always looking for something very personal a personal way to attach to, to a movie yeah no i think that's and, and this does feel like a, an incredibly uh a, not only a personal movie but We'll get into this, but I also feel a really strong connection between you and Michael 
in the film. I think that comes through very clearly in the interviews. And I want to talk with you. We'll come back to that in a minute. But one of the questions that I had for you is um, we talk a lot in this podcast about the first five or 10 minutes of a movie. And sort of as a filmmaker, you know, what you have to accomplish in that first few minutes. You know, you, you have to obviously introduce the audience to the story, but you also have to let them know what the tone is, kind of explain the kind of the rules of the cinematic universe, you know, how you're going to be telling this story. And in, in this film still, the first five minutes I feel are just extraordinary because you, you, you're dropping the audience right into this very unique, uniquely distinctive way you're going to tell this particular story with the, the combination of archival footage, clips from Michael's previous films, reenactments, interview. So tell me a little bit about your explorations and how you figured out how you wanted to get into the story, like, was it clear from you from the very beginning that you were going to tap into Michael's previous movies in terms of putting these sequences and these thoughts together? Well, the biggest thing is that I, as I wanted to, I wanted to subvert the audience's expectation that they were seeing, um, a, um, an all quote, a sick movie, <laughs> you know, a story about someone who's got this really sad disease and aren't we going to feel sorry for them? And so there's a big joke at the beginning that we, that we go to where I was like, I say, um, is this the story of a sad sack? Is this the story of a sad sack guy who gets a debilitating disease and it crushes him? And Michael says, no, that's boring. You know, and the way he, I'm saying it now is not very funny, but the way he says it is very funny. And, 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 um, so immediately you're saying, wait a minute. Um, this is not the movie I thought I was going to see. I think, and I think the other part is, is, is shown in Skip's work where, you, you know, you're under the main, under the titles you hear, you know, sound design, sound design of Florida, sound design of a, of a hotel hallway, sound design of a hotel presidential suite. And you go, Oh, this feels cinematic. You know, it, it's not, it goes, it, 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 it's not your typical documentary, which is much more sort of a slave to realism, you know? Yeah. Skip, tell us about that, uh, that first few minutes and the possibilities that, that, that opened up for you for storytelling with sound. As Davis says, you know, that, that first sequence, which is happening in the hotel in Florida, when he's first getting kind of a sense of like something's wrong with his hand. I, I love the, the treatment of sound in that sequence. Just tell us about how you approach that and how you built that sequence. Well, like all, all fantastic movies, it's uh, fantastically untethered and very cinematic and not two people talking to each other, looking into each other's eyes. It's, it's much quite the opposite of that. And um, plus, we don't really know where we are, what's happening. We know who Michael J. Fox is, but we don't know where we're being dropped in. And OK, is this just like another Woody Harrelson drunk story, like he says in the movie, or is this something important happening here we and um but i think by focusing like scorsese used to say speaking of marty scorsese he used to say if i'm going to shoot an individual shot of something it probably needs to have a sound so that's a focusing idea that uh davis uses in this scene spectacularly where we we get to uh follow an abstract thread directly to the heart of the issue. And I think that's, it's a, it's a tribute to you guys, Davis, and um, 
being able to have a nice setup like that, that both is from somewhere and is going somewhere as well. And of course, we have some, we had some good ideas. We had, we had some, Davis gave us some stuff to bite on. <laughs> Actually, really hard stuff to bite on, I might add. The star of the movie is The Sound of a Moth. Mm, that's not easy to do. What does that mean? The, the star of the movie has the sound of a moth. The first bit of sound design is this fluttering sound, which, which we had given him a temp thing that Michael Hart, the editor, had found. I don't think it was a moth. I forget what it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't what you hear in the movie. And um, and Skip was like, "I've done moths before. Have you seen Silence of the Lambs?" And he says, "They're they're 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 terrible. You, you, moths are a nightmare. Don't, you know, don't ask me to do a moth." <laughs> <laughs> okay, Davis. Do you remember calling me about and sending me a script about two years before you got into production? And yeah. you said, I want to do a movie with Michael J. Fox where he's like the star of his own life and it's going to be like a gigantic drama, all recreations with Michael in it and not in it. Was that, am I, am I misremembering that or is that part of the history of this project? It was, it, it was, it, it, it's, you're right. It, it, um, it was very different at the beginning. And it all changed. Um, uh, yeah. Well, it's, good. Skip, Skip, thank you for teeing that up. Davis, what did this movie start? I, 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 I'm so taken by this combination of the films, the reenactments, like how, where did it start for you? What did you think you were setting out to make and how did it evolve? Well, go back, going back to those cards, I mean, something wild, something adventurous. I, I wanted to break out of, sort of the the box of documentaries and i thought we had the the license to do it because it's about a person who lives this he's he lives a tall tale it's a short kid from canada who wants to be a movie star and and there's no way he's going to be a movie star and then he becomes a movie star and then to write when he at the height of his career at 29 he gets parkinson's you know and and instead of Instead of like embracing it, he runs away and pretends he doesn't have it. It's 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 like this wild ride with a with a Greek twist to it, you know. So um, I just wanted to do something way out of the box and 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 try some things and go too far, you know. Um, and uh, and Skip was along for the ride. I mean, like we tried, we we did some wacko things, and and some of them worked. Give me an example of uh, something that an approach that you guys tried that didn't work. I think, you know, it's like like every movie, it's a process. So um, some stuff is too big and some stuff is annoying, too annoying. And you have to pull back or push forward in the right places. And I think that's what Davis is talking about. We did have a really fantastic score to work with. Thank you, John Powell. And um, that was no end to um, uh, entertainment to me during the process. But... Um, it's it's a really strange idea where you have a real event and you're doing a documentary, which is supposed to be sort of documenting something that really happened. And the subject is also really famous. So I think um, the, the unexpected nature of constantly being shown just how famous the person in the movie is, was uh, 
it kind of enabled what we were doing um, sound-wise. I mean, especially I'm thinking of the Back to the Future sequence, which I think is just goes solid gold. It, like you, you couldn't make that big enough. It couldn't be too big. And as much as we tried, it just got to be more and more fun. <laughs> and I'm not sure if Davis think we still went too far, but um, I, I found that to be absolutely thrilling. It's interesting that Skip had mixed many of Michael's previous films. You're remixing yourself, which is interesting. There's a, quite a few things in the movie that I didn't know about Michael J. Fox, even though I have worked on a lot of his movies. And there are a lot of clips throughout the movie that are taken from films that I worked on and not necessarily in any particular order. I mean, there's a ton of stuff from Bright Lights, Big City and um, Life with Mikey's in there. The concierge, there's a bunch of things. Uh, I went to visit the set with Miranda, my daughter, who was at the time about five. And she said, I said, come on, let's go over and say hi to Barry. And, and there's Michael J. Fox and, and we'll get something from the snack bar. And she said, no, nah, I think we should go. I'm like, okay. So we left, we split and we went to a restaurant and she vomited over the entire restaurant. <laughs> we were like seconds from vomiting all over Barry's set. Genius daughter that I have. <laughs> That's a crazy story. It is, it is really. I mean, I, I honestly do feel like I know him. And it was very accessible, both the, the book story and um, the, I guess, it feels a little bit like getting old at a certain point. Everyone has that disease. Michael has it in a more acute version of it than the rest of us do. Davis, I came away from this film with such incredible respect for your skills as an as an interviewer. And I want to ask you about the process of shooting that interview. I, I had read somewhere uh, with you talking about the film that your original idea was that you didn't want to do any interviews. Is that is that true? So and, and then how did you come to sort of realize that, like, actually sitting down with Michael was the way to go? You're right. And I um, I was like, no, talking heads. I was trying to get away from the, the trappings of a, of a typical nonfiction movie. And then I was doing this commercial, and the, uh, the DP Claire Popkin, who did um, the movie Free Solo, he was working on the commercial, and uh, he set up this one shot that is like the Interatron. For those people who don't know what that is, it's something Errol Morris fashioned, where it looks like the viewer is looking straight into the camera through an effect using a mirror and, um, and a monitor. And I hate it because I, I can't, when I, when you do the interrogation, you can't look at someone in the eye. And Claire had found this one angle where you can interview someone in the camera is just, it's like a 40 millimeter lens at a certain angle. And me, the interviewer can look at Michael and Michael can look at me, but it actually looks like he's looking in the lens. I had no, I had no money. I was taking jam packets from IHOPs. What's that? Like, like smuckers to, to eat. Come on. And I, I, I was finding quarters and nickels and dimes and I'd use that to get to the next moment. I was looking beat to beat. And I, I said, I, I gotta get out of here. I, I have no money and I owe the IRS money and I, I, I'm ducking the landlord and I got no phone. I'm gonna have to walk to the airport. Michael and I are like four feet apart. Like, and so, in most interviews and documentaries, people don't know this, but you use longer lenses and you're like 15 feet apart. So that distance creates a lot of distance. The distance creates distance. 
And this, so I was like, I really enjoyed that commercial. And I was like, well, let's just go to Michael to see what happens. Let's try it. Um, and, we, you know, he was, he had Parkinson's and it was unclear whether he would be intelligible or whether it'd be a good day or a bad day. And the shot was amazing. And then Michael was just incredible. I mean, he, he's funny and present. And I think the biggest thing is he was open. You know, in documentaries, I think what happens when you watch documentaries, you talk to people afterwards and like, well, they didn't really say that part. Or, you know, they didn't they didn't tell me that part or they were they were dodging that part. And I, I feel like when I'm watching it that Michael's telling you everything. And I think that's one of the things a documentary needs to do is make you feel like you're 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 you're, you're you get to know the person perfectly, you know, openly, you know. I, I appreciate you giving the credit to Michael for being open, but I also feel like, you know, he's a, he's a very funny guy. And I, I, I felt a couple of times during the interviews that he was, he was doing something that I think he does naturally, which is use humor to deflect, but you, you would not be deflected and you kind of gently stayed there. You, you asked some pretty probing questions and I just, uh, uh, I, th I thought your, your interview skills were fantastic. Thank you. Um, the last day of shooting, there was this feeling we had the film finished and it was pretty good. It's, it's pretty much how you see it, except for this one question, which I, I just felt like I needed to fly back to New York and ask it, which is comes from your question, which is that, that he's always deflecting. And and um, I said, all the, I've talked to you for hours and hours and hours, and you never tell, never talk about your pain. And he deflects. He says, well, it never came up. <laughs> now, I'm not going to leave with it. I just keep pushing. And to his credit, I mean, to, I, I pushed him really hard. To his credit, he answered, you know, and it, he just stops and he says, I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. I've interviewed you for hours and hours and hours. You've never told me once I'm in pain. I'm in pain. I'm in, right. I, I, it's intense pain. Five, four. Three, two, one, and relax. And in fact, it was the first time I really knew that. I knew he was uncomfortable, but I didn't know his Parkinson's. And I, you know, maybe I should have asked it six months earlier. But um, I really feel like it's him. I mean, my job is to ask the obvious questions and, and to be open and to listen, which isn't that hard. It's really the subjects matter to be open. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, but you, you asked that question in the perfect way. You were persistent and then he opened up and it's actually, I, t to me, one of the most beautiful moments in the, in the documentary because it completely upends my understanding of what his existence is right now. And it, it's a, it, yeah, it's a fantastic moment. Skip thought I should cut it. He didn't like that scene. It's true. He's not, no, he's, he's not, he did not, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm just trying to get Skip to laugh. I like a good cry. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm a real crybaby these days. I, I, did you cry? I've had some pretty cry moments recently during interviews, and like the director's like, well, I guess you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> I had a moment like that on an inspirational sports movie, and the director was flabbergasted. He was like, what? Who are you? <laughs> One of the questions that I had for you was, uh, and, and Skip, this is partially for you and for Davis, on those these, those interviews, I feel like you're not, Davis, you didn't mic yourself, right? So 
we're picking you up from what a room mic or and skip was that was that difficult for you to deal with it it actually but it really reminded me of it made me feel like errol morris you know kind of shouting in these questions from the side It makes you an incredibly rich presence in the film. And also, I like the fact that you were off mic. But Skip, obviously, that must have been difficult for you to deal with. Well, I think in both cases, uh, uh, both Errol and Davis like to be felt and not heard. <laughs> and uh, that technique, I think, is a winner because it, we've used it in Davis's movies and I use it with Errol a bunch. And I think they... Um, well, you'd have to ask Davis, but to me, it feels like part of the the function of the interviewer, the document, and the subject. And um, there, Davis and I have had a whole bunch of discussions about what the audio should be like and how differences of audio is detected by the audience. And the audience is real super wise about what, when things are very clear, it means one thing, and when they're not clear, it means something else. And I think, and you can ask him, he's right there. You can ask him, is that why? Is that why your voice in the movie is that way? I don't think we, we didn't have on mic version of you. We only had what's in Michael's recordings. Yeah, I'd done it once or twice for other movies, and I didn't like it because it found it sounds like, you know, I'm Maury Povich or or um, Geraldo or something, or you know. And it, um, I love when Errol's like, so how come you didn't, uh, how come you bombed Cambodia? Yeah. What Skip is saying in a, in a more articulate way is like, it has a, it has a, it has a, its own quality. And it, it says that this is, this is not a person who's not, you know, who's not the subject. I think the audience immediately keys in and gets, you know, that it's, it's an other voice. It's not the person on camera, not the person. It's not what the movie's about. It's it's part of the process. Tell me about the process of shooting the reenactments. Uh, how, how thrilling was it to recreate Back to the Future, first of all? Really fun. And, and I haven't mentioned Michael Hart, the editor, who is very much the genius behind using. I was sort of a, a voice for the recreations, an advocate for the recreation. He was an advocate for using points of parts of Michael's movies in ways that I didn't imagine. And so there's this battle with me and him, um, which turned out to be a very productive battle. But I, um, so I was always storyboarding from that sequence. Um, and I'd put those in the movie and then Michael Hart editor would take them out and put in like, for, for instance, um, Bright Lakes Big City when he's sitting down at the desk and supposedly talking to Gary David Goldberg. Um, so it was very, um, it was a sort of a um, trial and error as we were cutting it. But tr but the best part, it was trial and error with storyboards. So I could show you that Back to the Future sequence with Bright Lights Big City and other pieces and Family Ties and Back to the Future. But the recreations were storyboarded for a year. Um, and Skip saw cuts like that. Um, we locked picture almost like to the minute with storyboards and then shot the reenactments at the very last minute and just slotted them in shot by shot. The point being that reenactments are 
very expensive and um, you can't just fiddle around with them. You can't just sort of like, oh, go out and shoot a bunch of stuff. And so we were very precise about that. Telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? The breakthrough was what Michael Hart did, which was to start to put in footage from Michael J. Fox's movies and using them as if he's living that moment in, in the movie. And that was that was a breakthrough. And that was all Michael Hart. Don't they don't recreations also have another kind of sad downside is that you can never get anything new. Like you can't get a burst of spontaneity or a flash of hope or something from a from a recreation. You can't get anything new, and I really don't like seeing the the actors' eyes because you know you know there's not only one Michael J. Fox. We had a great we had a great actor who kind of moved like him. He sort of slides around and had his hair and his body size, and he was wonderful. The way he ran down the stairs, the way he sort of skipped around, the way Michael J. Fox moved. But when, I don't know about you guys, but when I see like a biopic of John Belushi or a biopic of even Ray Charles, that's a good movie. But like, I I want to see Ray Charles. I want to see John Belushi. And so in, the, in our case, you really couldn't see this guy's eyes. And so there's a certain point where you just, you want to see him. You know, and so Michael Michael Hart's solution was to use that footage in a different way. Tell me about all the different audio elements that you had. So you had audiobook from Michael, you have the archival stuff, you have obviously tons of movies, most of which were from the eighties. So Skip, was that mostly LTRTs? Did you have any five point one? Like I mean Tell me about all this stuff coming in and, and you and you ended up with an Atmos mix. So tell me about getting starting from that stuff and ending up in Atmos. Yeah, and especially, like I say, especially the um, Back to the Future stuff sounds clear as a bell and crisp, just like we would do it today. But, um, yeah, we had a lot of, a lot of as most documentaries do, they have, you have stuff from all over the place and generally not in a controlled environment. And um, most of the movie stuff is clear and, and movie-ish. And there isn't an awful lot of um, uh, downside to that stuff, but... Um, well, like Michael walking in the street, for instance, I think Michael had a lav, and that's what he had to use for the whole sequence. And some of that stuff is a little hard to hear, but you get the joke at the end. So I think um, that might be to Davis's point that if it sounds too good, that it doesn't feel like a documentary anymore. But um, we also had the book on tape was a, was a drag because the version that we had was the wrong audio quality. and. Uh, so we had to recopy all of that from scratch. So that was exciting, challenging using a piece of software called Matchbook or something like that, where it could compare two streams of audio and find all the little bits. So it was pretty exciting when we found that piece of software. <laughs> the other part is that is that there were at least three Michael J. Fox voices in the movie. You know, and, and Skip is known for his his dialogue, and I I, I would say there's no one better. Um, across everything, but especially dialogue. So we, 
one book on tape was Lucky Man, which is 2002. His, his book on tape from his book called Lucky Man. The other one was 2020, 18 years later for No Time Like the Future. So 18 year difference. His Parkinson's has been, it was 18 years more advanced. Uh, and so in the in Lucky Man, he's pretty clear. And No Time Like the Future, you can really hear a difference in his voice, like, um, a little more slurry. Um, some words were less intelligible. And then, of course, the on-camera interview, which was two years later. And we were intercutting them. So um, some scenes had had dialogue from all three, inter not with any pauses in between. And so Skip had to, and, the, and the, the quality of that one book was very poor. The, the publisher had been bought and then bought again and then bought again. So the source, the source material was lost. Um, and we, and when you first saw the first rough cut, you were like, this is an, I remember you were saying this is a nightmare. <laughs> I always said to you, Dave, it's just to get your arise. But yeah, it was, it's particularly challenging because it's so crucial to hear what he's saying in every case. There's, there's nothing, there's no loose thrown in ad libs. It's all to the point. Do you say that to Alfonso when you start? Do you say this is a nightmare or just to me? I absolutely say that. I say it to Scorsese as well, not anymore. <laughs> Skip, I want to make sure I understand. So the, the, the quality from that first audiobook was so bad. So you, I, 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 tell me again, so we, what, what did you end up doing with it? It was a bad transfer. And so we had to go back and uh, I listened to the CD, I think it was, and it sounded fine on the CD. So there's a piece of software that can uh, look at two audio streams and I guess they probably have to be in, well, they can't be in sync. Anyway, it's it finds the bits. I'm not sure how it happened. I think it's called Match Back. So it was a particularly helpful piece of gear. And it, it turned out, I think it turned out that the, the cutting style of the movie really helped. That the footage was so, each piece was so divergent and so different, you know, from, you're cutting between family ties to a reenactment to a piece of archive to to an on camera that that by the end the audience was just accepting different types different different qualities you know there, there are quite a lot of fragments in the um, welcome to the jungle part of the movie that that voice is pretty and there's a lot of music so it's you know that on top of that. Um, so it is challenging, some of that stuff, but uh, the spirit is, is good, solid. Skip, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that, uh, that, that walk uh, sequence that, you know, that, that shot, that long shot that you do with Michael when he's with his physical therapist and walking outside the building and he takes that tumble. Um, and it's just, Davis, it's like that moment when you ask him about his pain. Like it's so, it tells you so much about him and who he is, how he responds in that moment. And taking that kind of what looks like a pretty bad fall and his shoe goes flying off, but the, he still makes a joke. Nice and slowly, nice and slowly. There you go. Beautiful. <laughs> Good. Stop and reset. That happened. All right, yeah, okay. Maybe. 
Nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you. You're not going to have my feet. <laughs> Kudos to you for not cutting, first of all. <laughs> Keep the camera rolling and see what happens, right? Yeah, I remember sitting, uh, standing next to Julia Liu. Our, 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 she was our documentary DP, director of photography. She was incredible. And I, was just, I remember looking at her going, don't cut, don't cut, don't cut. You know, um, and no one, the, the, he, the shot was over. He, he was so far away. He was so small. He was like this big in the screen. And um, we were, I was thinking about the next shot. But, and so no one imagined him falling at that point. Um, it was the first day of shooting with him. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. You know, we were at the same time terrified that he was hurt and then suddenly laughing because he wouldn't allow us to be terrified or worse pitying. I want to talk with you guys about your, you have a long standing collaboration going back to an inconvenient truth and, uh, going through, you know, I, I think all of Davis's films, you've, you, you guys have collaborated. What's the approach to sound? in documentaries, Skip, I know you and I have had this conversation a couple of times. Is there, is there any, are there any fundamental differences between your approach to sound and storytelling for fiction versus documentary film? I would say it all feels the same to me, basically. The audio is the audio. It's not like there's an option to not use it. Uh, occasionally there's a, a substitute line or, or there's some ADR or some voiceover or something, but Generally, the audio is what we have to work with, and we have to make it sound clear and intelligible and as high quality as we can. And I don't think there's there's any way, other way around it. That those are the that's what the job is. And I've learned a bunch of stuff over the years with Davis. Uh, a lot of the document, like I work on more documentaries with Davis than Errol or the other people I've worked with, and Errol's. Movies are about the Terratron. There usually is a very noisy single track to work with, and it's pretty clear. But Davis's movies have much more of a um, run and gun, you know, grab that sequence, get the best sound you can. And very, very occasionally I would convince him to do, to re-record a line or something. The subject of what he just said is Davis is far less competent. <laughs> Davis is really bad at the Terratron idea, but... <laughs> As long as we don't have too much in Terratron, which we don't usually have very much uh, anyway. No, we've had we've had some very fun and spirited discussions about audio. Um, I can tell you that Davis likes kind of a choppy sort of sound to it. He really, I do think Davis sincerely believes the audience, it registers with the audience and it feels more real. And um, I don't doubt that. Even though it is anti- smooth and clear in some cases uh it almost always does sound more uh real ultimately and i guess documentary sound is all about that ultimately but didn't you think john was an interesting angle john powell the uh, composer to this process for sure the music is fantastic i'd love yeah davis talk about working with john and sort of how you how you develop the the the, the, the music for the film well, it's a good it's a good way to talk about both those the, the previous question as well, which is that I think in a much more traditional documentary, you can polish too much the sound, you can make it too perfect, and that's sort of what we talk about the off camera voice. You 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 want to make sure that the audience feels like you're you haven't screwed with the original material. Um, 
in this case, I didn't feel that need. Like this is a very much like what I pitched to Apple was like, you're, you're watching a movie, you're going on a wild ride. So it, I didn't need to, I wasn't worried about over polishing anything. And that sort of also informed music, which is that like a lot of music, like the music for Inconvenient Truth is Michael Brook, which is a very traditional, Michael Brook's an amazing composer, but his stuff is much more restrained, at least the stuff in Inconvenient Truth. It's a little bit more neutral. It doesn't lead in the way traditional feature scores do. Uh, and in this one, I was like, I want to throw that out the window. And, and you know, John Powell did How to Train Your Dragon and Happy Feet and Born Identity. Those are big, big, bold scores. And I, and that's, and that's what I said to John is big and bold. Now, in truth, when we started to, 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 to listen, there are times it was too much. And, and finding the score for the more doc, traditional documentary scenes, like when Michael walking to walking and falls, that score is actually pretty upbeat, pretty, um, not traditional in a documentary, but it, it would, it, it could have gone too far. But, but that's, but well, that was the idea is that this film does not want to be held back by some of the traditions of documentary. Wasn't there a time when somebody said, no violence. So when I first met Michael J. Fox, uh, it was a Zoom like this, and he was in Carpinteria. It was on a family vacation. I was in L.A. And it's it's, for, it, it's rarely happens. He's like, I want to do this. I'm like, great, let's do it. He goes, I have one thing. Uh, 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 I said, I have one thing. And my thing was, I don't want to make a film about Parkinson's, which means, like, don't kind of the, what I do with like Al Gore and Bill Gates is like break everything down and a kind of, you know, you're, you're at the end, you learn about nuclear power or, or climate change. And we didn't do that, hopefully. And, and with him, he was like, no violins. And I took that to mean no pitying. No. I'm glad you said that. Cause it's really, that's kind of a genius directive to give to you because it tells you so much about how he wants his story to be told, no violence. Well, the other thing is I remember leaving the mix stage with Skip. It was like, okay, we're done. This is, you know, that feeling. And when you leave the mix stage, it's like, you're done. Like locking picture is a big moment and doing the color is very important. You know, getting your final notes from the studios. There are all these like thresholds, but leaving the mix is you're done. There's no more, you're done, you know? And I remember going, and I think I was like telling the no violin story, maybe to skip. And I was like, fuck, there's so many violins in this movie. <laughs> and I was like, I hope, I hope, I hope he was talking metaphorically and not literally. <laughs> and, and, and waiting to go to Sundance, which is a couple months later, I forget exactly. But like in going, when he sees the film, he's going to hear a lot of violins. I, 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 I'm worried because I didn't, he never, he didn't hear the score until Sundance. You know? Did he ever say anything about it? No, no. Well, then it worked. It worked. worked. John Powell's music is 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 special, and and um, and uh, he gave us a real gift um, to work on this movie. Just to follow up on what you're talking about, and you mentioned you use the term cinematic in regards to that opening sequence, and I feel like you know Davis, even over the course of your documentary career since Inconvenient Truth, I feel like audiences have become indoctrinated and trained now to maybe expect 
a more cinematic feel from nonfiction films. And so this kind of, I have a feeling I know how you're going to answer this question, but why do you keep working with Skip? What makes him a great sound artist? I mean, we all know he's a curmudgeon, but. We have a contract, you know. Be careful where you go. <laughs> well, I've got three answers to that. One is, why does he work with me? And on Inconvenient Truth, I was like, I think the judge ordered like 50 hours of community service and that I was, I was going to fulfill half of that or something. I don't know. Um, the, the real answer is, well, there are two real answers. One is he's the very best. And I, I'm, when I joke with him, it's, it's so that I, it, it, so I, it allows me then to become sincere, which is that he's the best. There's no one better. And they're, 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 I just think, I just, I trust his ears. Um, I trust his ears and, 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 um, and I actually, it's interesting. I don't trust my ears. Uh, I trust them when I watch a playback. I don't trust them when I'm sitting in the room for 10 hours because I'm lost. And so I trust, I trust Skip and, and he has, you know, and he's the best. He's the best. Well, I would say back at you, but that's too cheap. I mean, really working with people like Davis, or I should say working with Davis enables me to enjoy my job in a way that doesn't happen hardly at all. It's it's just a fun and rewarding adventure like, you know, friends and adults should be entitled to have now and then. But I really did enjoy um, working on this movie and all of the other movies that we've done together because Davis is a very good friend, a very loyal friend. I said there are two reasons that I forgot the second one. <laughs> Here's the second one. And, and this, it'll sound like it's, it's not true, but it's actually true. And, it, and, and it's like when I'm at the stage and I say, hey, Skip, let's try this thing. And this is what you see. You're like, hey, Skip, try this thing. And you're like, like what? What? He goes, it's a terrible idea. It's always comes down to the sound of my voice joke. It, it's just, it's, it's so, it's such an easy touch. No, that, we already did the sound of your voice joke. Well, that, that was but this, my point was, and, and I, this sounds like I'm making fun, but I'm actually not, is that you, there aren't that many people who will tell you directly if your idea is terrible. You know, and, um, and and that's why I, and that's why I trust you. Like it's like, you know, what do you think? It's a terrible idea. Great, that's helpful. And sometimes we do the terrible idea, and sometimes it works. But but all, but ninety percent of the time, it is a terrible idea. But I'm saying you don't. There are a lot of people you encounter that are that just want to please you, and that is absolutely not the case with Skip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess you're. Right. <laughs> I do think every idea, no matter how, how lame it is, deserves to be prosecuted to the full extent. So I do, Davis, always do what you ask. And then I say, that's a terrible idea. That's true. <laughs> but it, it sounded like I'm just giving you shit, but it's true. Like you, 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 want, it, you want to be in the room. Michael Hart, the editor, is the same way. Who are – who – who are not afraid to to fight for what's best, and that's Skip. 
Well, I would say, Davis, also, you have to be a filmmaker who is who is willing to accept collaboration. I think, Skip, you and I have certainly worked with some directors who are not that willing to accept collaboration in the past. So that starts with the tone that you set, sir. Final question. Uh, this movie is streaming right now on Apple TV Plus and Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. But Skip, for you, what uh, what what is the Atmos mix? What's happening in the Atmos mix on this film and what should we be listening for? Well, the music is on full display in the Atmos version. Um, we've moved around as much as we could. It's a, it's a little bit different, difficult doing a period film with period audio and not have it sound wonky for it to be wider than the, the front speakers, basically. And uh, music has always enjoyed that. And nothing is too big for the score. And so we push that around quite a bit. And as well, the um, the clips, the music from the clips. But um, yeah, I think uh, Amos in this case, and like a lot of cases, is about uh, reproduction in the room of uh, high quality uh, audio in the room, broadcast and otherwise. And um, with this certain knowledge that whatever listening to on the stage is actually gonna be reproduced in people's homes is the whole, to the key to, to me. and. If you get to have a sequence where you can really move stuff around, then that's a, just like a big bonus track. Uh, it's really, I love the idea. I mean, we do everything in Atmos first, and then we can melt that down however is required. And I think that's a really good way of working. Well, gentlemen, again, congratulations on your Emmy nominations for Still. It's a fantastic movie. I'm so glad that I got a chance to see it. And so thankful to you both to come on the, the Dolby podcast and talk with us about the film. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, our pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. Many thanks once again to Davis and Skip for joining us today and an extra special thanks to our friends at Apple for putting this conversation together. As I mentioned up top, still a Michael J. Fox movie is currently playing on Apple TV Plus in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. You can find links as always in our show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with inspiring artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>